Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swain, so without further ado, here he is. We looked into uh, how our God is a missionary God. We looked at Abraham and how God called Abraham and how he blessed Abraham, not just for his own blessedness, but so that he could be a blessing to others. This week we're going to uh, look, take a look at who we are in relation to God. What is our identity? God is a missionary God. Well, what does that make us? When uh, our first daughter uh, was first starting to speak, um, I remember I'd be in the kitchen sometimes and she'd walk in and she'd see me and she'd look, she'd look at me with really cute eyes. She'd say, Daddy, can I want a cookie? And I'd look at her, I'd think, yes, you can want one. You know, but it's like, oh, I don't know, what's her mom going to say? But, you know, I'd give her a cookie. You know, I knew what she meant. She, she could mix up her words a little bit, but I knew what she was saying. She's like, I want one of those cookies right there. <clears throat> if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. More about Abby later. <clears throat> it says, In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called called to him from the mountain, and he said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So this is three months after the Exodus, but let's rewind a little bit. Let's go back to last week when God calls Abraham. So Abraham left Everything he had left his family, left everything, went to left Ur and went to the place that God showed him. And when he got there, God made a promise for him. I will bless you to be a blessing to others. He also promised him he would be a great nation. Late in his life, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac grew up and he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob uh, was a trickster. He liked to trick people and liked to play jokes on people. Um, And he wrestled with God. And God changed his name to Israel. Israel means wrestles with God. So this nation now has this name, wrestling with God. And uh, Israel, he had 12 sons. And one of his younger sons, the the second youngest, name was Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he went to Egypt. And in Egypt, he became very powerful next to Pharaoh. And you know the story. His brothers joined him. For 400 years... The Israelites lived in Egypt, and they eventually became slaves in Egypt. And that's where we are in this story. They become slaves. Moses leads them out of Egypt into the desert. Three months into the desert, God proclaims his identity to them. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So right here, God lays out his dream, his foundation. This is my idea for you. You're set apart. You're holy. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Let's jump forward 10 chapters, see what happens. Exodus chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. This is what God says to Moses. Have Aaron, your brother, 
brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell, tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments also for Aaron, for his consecration, so that he may serve me as priests. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So God lays out his dreams. He brings Israel out of the Egypt. They're in the desert. He, he says, this is my vision for you. You will be a kingdom of priests. And then just ten chapters later, he pulls out a small group of them. He says, you will be, have a, be a kingdom with priests. So what in the world happened? Was God somehow like my daughter Abigail and he mixed up his prepositions? Did he really mean, can I have a cookie? And he said, can I want a cookie? When he said, you'll be a kingdom of priests, did he really just mean, you'll be like everyone else and you'll have a special class of people among you who will have a special relationship with me and they'll come to, come to the people on behalf of everyone and they will be the priests among you and everybody else is just normal people? Is that what God meant? Or was he confused? What happened? God was not confused. God had a very clear vision of what he had in mind for Israel. Israel was not at a point in their history where they were ready to fully become the people that God had intended them to be. So what does it mean to be a priest? Let's dissect this a little bit. First of all, priests are consecrated. Uh, that means they're devoted, they're set apart, they're, they're specially designed just for one purpose, just for the service of God. In my family, and if you come to our kitchen and you open one of the drawers, you'll look inside and you'll see a thing that looks like a pair of scissors. I've looked in that drawer before, I've seen the scissors, and I've said, oh, I have these strings on these clothes, I need to chop them off, or, you know, there's, a, there's some paper I need to cut, I cut that. If my wife walks in and sees me doing this, she's, she gasps and she says, What are you doing? Those are kitchen shears. Those have a special purpose. They are set apart for something very special. Food. That's it. Nothing else. You can't use them on your hair. You can't use them on your clothes. You can't use them on paper. You can't use them on your guitar strings. That is only for food. You're going to mess them up. They're special. They're separate. Consecrated is that word. Consecrated is separate, set apart has a special purpose, a special design, a special idea in mind for it. I thought it was interesting as I was looking through this, I, I, I read a little bit about Old Testament priests, and, and it describes a little bit of their clothes. They had to wear the, the ephod and the sash and this, the special breastplate that had like 12 jewels in it. And Basically, these guys were decked out, bright colors. If, if they're walking down the street, you're going to see them coming about a mile away. You're going, whoa, there he is. That guy's a priest. He is not dressed like the normal people. He is flashy. He's, uh, he's obvious. Everything that priests did, everything in their life, from the clothing they wore to the way that they lived their daily life, was consecrated to God. It was set apart. Their outward appearance was supposed to reflect an inward purity that they had. There are two main functions or roles of priests. The first role is that they represented God to the people. The priest's role was to come to the people and bring God's message to the people. 
As they received sacrifices and animals that people would bring to God, they received those sacrifices, and, and that symbolized God's acceptance. They even brought God's justice to the people. One of their roles was uh, to guard the temple. If they saw anybody breaking the temple rules, the rules are very strict. They had strict guidelines of how they were supposed to execute people very quickly, very swiftly. And it was quite shocking, uh, some of the th- ways and some of the things that the priests had to do if you broke the very sacred and holy rules of, of temple worship, especially if you entered into a sanctuary that you weren't permitted to be in. So they had, they had this purpose of representing God to the people. And their second main purpose was representing the people to God. By being consecrated, by being set apart, by being holy, they signified the access that God was giving people to him. They would go to the presence of God on behalf of the people. They would bring the sacrifices and they would ask for forgiveness on behalf of all the people. And because of that, God heard their request and granted it. The priests were the mediators between the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. The realm of humanity and the realm of God. Look with me in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46. Last week we talked a little bit how the, uh, in the Old Testament thinking and in, in Hebrew thinking, the, the temple was the place on earth where the realm of heaven and the realm of earth crossed. And that's where the high priest would go once a year and he would step through the, the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies and he would offer sacrifice on behalf of the people and he would um, ask for forgiveness of sins of all the people. It was, he was basically crossing the bridge. He was crossing the two realms. <clears throat> in Luke 23, this is what happened. This is when Jesus is on the cross. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. As Jesus was hanging on the cross dying, God did an amazing thing. He tore the curtain temple right down the middle and opened up the Holy of Holies into the world. It was a symbolic act on God's part, saying no longer is the Holy of Holies reserved to just this one small space in the temple. No longer is the place where the realm of heaven and the realm of earth cross in this one holy place. But the realm of heaven has now broken forth into the world. God has unleashed his kingdom onto humanity. Turn to 1 Peter 2, 9-12. And Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Often in our churches, often in our Christian life, it is so easy to think that the work of the ministry belongs to pastors and preachers and missionaries and those who have some title, some Christian title in front of their name. 
There's a pastor of a vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. His name's Rich Nathan. He has a pretty large growing church. They're doing all kinds of amazing things in the community. Recently at, a, at an event, he said, you know, sometimes in the churches we have the mentality that the church is sitting on the sidelines in this big football arena. The whole church is sitting there in the stands, and they're going, go, pastor, go, pastor, go, pastor. And the pastor's out on the field with the ball running as fast as he can and doing it as, working as hard as he can to, to advance the kingdom message, to advance the gospel. Rich Nason says, we have this backwards. It should be the other way. He said, the pastor should be on the sidelines. He said, our churches should be out on the field. And the pastor should be going, go, people, go, people, go, people. He says, it is the work of the church to advance the message, to advance the kingdom. And the, and the, the pastors should be the coaches and the mentors and the trainers that are spurring people on. Sometimes, without meaning to, we make jokes. Uh, you may have made this before, and it, it's not a big deal. Um, but it kind of, you know, with every, in every jest, there's a little bit of truth. Sometimes people say something like, hey, pastor, you know what? Well, you know, since you have a direct line to God, would you pray for this for me? You know, it's, it's harmless. It's not really, they're not really intending to say anything heretical or anything like that. It's, it's not really a big deal. But actually what it does is it, it, re, it, it unveils a, a mindset that pastors or teachers or preachers are somehow on a level of holiness that no one else can attain. That somehow pastors have a direct line to God that nobody else has. And that just isn't true. That is not the case. So you may be saying, wait a second, is he saying vocational ministry is bad? We don't need pastors or preachers or teachers? No, that's not what I'm saying. Look in Ephesians 4. Paul gives us a clear example of why we need pastors, preachers, evangelists. Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of God. For those of us who are called to full-time ministry, we must not mistake our calling. We are not called to do all the works of all the ministry in the church. If you're a missionary, a youth pastor, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, if you are called to vocational full-time ministry, don't confuse what your role is. Our role is to prepare God's people for works of service. Our role is to train and equip saints for ministry. Our role is to build up the body of Christ. We're to strive towards unity in the faith, and we're supposed to strive towards instilling knowledge. Here's the, here's the clincher. If you're not called to full-time ministry, you're still called to full-time ministry. Let me say that again. If you're not called to full-time vocational lifelong ministry, you're still called to lifelong ministry. Let me explain this. All of us have certain spheres of influence in our life. Wherever we are, whatever we do, we have places, we have people, we have contacts. We have places that we are, that we, people that we touch in our lives that nobody else may ever touch. Nobody else may ever have contact with. It's in those places that we are called to live out our faith in such a way that we 
fulfill the duties of the priesthood in those settings. Recently, I was speaking at a college group. And I was talking about kingdom of priests and what it means to live our whole lives as ministry and not just have certain certain times set aside where we do ministry and the rest of our life we just do as we please. I was talking about this very topic about kingdom of priests. And afterwards, we split up into small groups. And I remember one of the college leaders, he was like, yeah, kingdom of priests. He was like, that's wonderful. We, you know, living our lives like that. Are you guys ready to commit to that? Does that sound like something you're ready to do? And he looked to the guy on his right. He looked at me. He said, I forget his name. He said, are you ready to do this in your life? Are you ready to commit your life to live like a kingdom, like a priest? Are you ready to do that? And the guy looked at him and said, no, I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't think I'm mature enough yet. And on one side, I appreciated this guy's honesty. I appreciated that he wasn't going to say something that he wasn't really going to live out. But on another side, I was very saddened by his, by his statement. I thought, man, did I teach it that poorly that he didn't understand the, not only the, the burden, but also the beauty of what it means to be a priest. And I've thought about it since. And you know what? I felt like, you know, he really is echoing the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament. No, I'm not ready for that. Is what they said to God. God had this dream for them, but they weren't prepared yet. They preferred to live in a place, in a way, where somebody went on their behalf and did the spiritual work for them. He prefers to sit in the outer courts of the temple, of the, of the sanctuary, of the temple. That's reserved. He, he prefers to sit out there when the Holy of Holies is ripped open. The, the room with the golden altar where God's presence resides is open to him. And he prefers to sit outside. He prefers to let other people be the mediators on his behalf and work on his behalf between him and God so that he doesn't have to. And ultimately, he's not willing to surrender his life to Christ. We must be cautious not to compartmentalize our lives and say, I have this time reserved for God, this time reserved for work, this time reserved for family. Work and family, you can compartmentalize, but you cannot compartmentalize your faith. Your faith has to be part of your everyday life. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My, my own shall become yours. God will settle for nothing less than our whole lives. If we're not willing to count the cost, We need to step back and review what it is he wants from us. St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, What we love, we grow to resemble. If we love God with a half heart, we're going to resemble a person who loves God with a half heart. 
I love that quote because whenever I hear that quote, I think of an old married couple who's been together for years and they really, really love one another. You know, sometimes you can see those people and you know they're married even though you haven't met them before because you look across the room and you look at them and they look like each other. Their mannerisms are the same. Their faces have the same expressions. They have the same. When they look at each other, you can see it in their eyes. What we love, we grow to resemble. As we think about that in our lives, what is it that you want to resemble? Our hope should be that we resemble Christ. How do we do that? The things that we love, we, won't, we can't help but spend time doing them, studying them, seeking them, watching them, listening to them. I mean, if you have a hobby, if you have something you love to do, in your free time, you find yourself getting caught up in it. You're reading everything you can about it. You want to know. You want to pour yourself into that. And before you know it, you become an expert in that, in that area. You become somebody who reflects that in everything you do. Shouldn't that be the way that we live our faith? As Lori and I, when we lived in Spain, one of the most uh, challenging things when we first got there is that people aren't very open to missionaries or pastors or, or preachers. That actually is a very big turnoff, and immediately a wall goes up. People are like, oh, okay, that's nice. They walk away. They never want to talk to you again. So we found that to be somewhat frustrating to sharing the gospel. And we're like, we need a way so that we can be normal, so that we have a chance for people to really hear what we're saying and decide if that's something that they want to reject or accept. And then if they reject it, that's great. But it shouldn't be just because of something, some label that we're painted into before they get to know us. So for us, the whole idea of opening a cafe in Spain was cafes are a dime a dozen in Spain. They're the most normal, everyday thing you can find. There's literally, you can walk out of our house, walk left, walk right. There's a cafe in both directions. So when opening a cafe gave us an opportunity to have a normal job, a normal context where we could connect with people every day. It was very normal, very boring. Got there every morning, put out the chairs, wiped down the counters, put out the coffee, set up everything, got out the dishes, set up the croissants. Very monotonous, daily routine. People come in, serve them a coffee, give them a drink. They would come in, they go out, they come in, they go out. It became monotonous. It was through that, though, that people came to know us every day. Through those relationships, we had the opportunity to share our faith with other people. I don't know when it was, some point in the cafe process, I kind of stepped back and I was like, we are just living a normal life here so that we can share our faith. It's like, how many people do I know back home who are living a normal life every day or connecting with people? They already have these spheres of influence around them. It's not something that they have to, to work so hard at because it's natural. It's part of their life. And how many opportunities are missed? Now, I'm not saying like this to make you feel guilty or feel bad. I'm just saying, step back, look a minute, and where you are. What is it in your life? Who do you have contact with in your week? We all have people that we connect with during our week. What would happen if, as Christians, we took seriously our, our, our faith and our desire to be Christians in every situation? How would some of our situations change? Maybe it would be subtle changes. Maybe it wouldn't be very obvious right away. Maybe people would start to look at us and go, Man, there's something, maybe he's just a nice guy. Maybe there's something more that would happen. Something would be striking to people and they would say, I don't know any other doctor who treats me the way you do. I don't know any other doctor who's listened to me like that. I don't know any other accountant who's cared so much about my finances. 
I don't know any fill-in-the-blank that, that cares so much about the way they do their work as I see that you do. I recently read a book, uh, Brian McLaren, called The Secret Message of Jesus. It talks about the kingdom of God. He said something in it that, that really struck me as I was preparing for the sermon. He says, the same thing happens with teachers, politicians, lawyers, engineers, and salespeople who take seriously their identity as participants in the kingdom of God. The way they teach, the way they develop public policies, the way they seek justice, the way that they design and work with resources from God's creation, the way that they buy and sell, all of these are given dignity in the context of God's kingdom. And soon, transformation begins to happen. After all, when you see your students, constituency, clients, or customers as people who are loved by God and as your fellow citizens in God's kingdom, it becomes harder to rip them off or give them second best. And when enough people begin to live with that viewpoint in little ways as well as big ones over long periods of times, things truly change. Education as we know it evolves, as do public policy, law, manufacture, and economics. In this way, each of us is not only praise. May your kingdom come, but we also become part of the answer to that prayer in our sphere of influence. <clears throat> Imagine if, as Christians, we took seriously the call to live a life of ministry. If we took seriously the call to be a kingdom of priests, we would be the best business owners, the best doctors, the best real estate agents. We would be we would see our lives and our, as our field of ministry. We would take seriously the, the Great Commission, go and make disciples. That would be something that we wouldn't think is something that we go and take to a far-off land. That's something we take with us every day, wherever we go, whatever we're doing. We also would see that ministry isn't something that we do, but it flows out of who we are. I've been reading A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. I quoted from him last week. And I, this week I read the last chapter of his book, and I could hardly believe it. Uh, so I want to share it with you this morning. He said, uh, We must offer all our acts to God and believe that he accepts them. Then hold firmly to that position and keep insisting that every act of every hour of the day and night be included in the transaction. Keep reminding God in our times of prayer that when we mean every act for his glory, then supplement those times by a thousand thought prayers as we go through the job of living. Let us practice the fine art of making every work a priestly ministration. Let us practice the fine art of making every work a priestly ministration. And let us believe that God is in all our simple deeds and learn to find him there. God's dream for us is to be a kingdom of priests. Priests are set apart for the work of God. They're consecrated. Priests are representatives or ambassadors of God to the people. Priests intercede on behalf of others to God. Priests are no longer limited to one class or tribe of people, but the access to the realm of God is open to all those who choose to enter. And as priests, we can bring God's kingdom to every vocation and every part of creation. I'd like to read 1 Peter one last time, this time from the message. It's the same, the same passage. Sometimes the message just has a certain ring to it that, that, that opens it up a little bit more. 
And this is what it says. But you are the chosen, you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you as a, as a people that are humbled. We don't deserve to be priests. We don't deserve to be called out. And we are so thankful that you have, uh, have shared your vision and your love for us in such a deep and meaningful way. Lord, we pray that as a church we will take seriously the call to be a kingdom of priests and not just a kingdom with priests. Lord, we pray that as a, as a church we will that you will just set us on fire as we seek you. Father, we pray that ministry won't be something that we just work at and do because we feel like we should, but that it flows out of our relationship and our connection with you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.